On August 30th, 2021, the last American military aircraft left Kabul airport, marking the supposed end to a futile two-decade-long war that cost hundreds of thousands of Afghan lives, not to mention about $300 million a day. If you're American, you've most likely been practically beaten over the head by cable news segments on Afghanistan. The same hacks that sold us the global war on terror have successfully laundered their reputations so much so that they can, without shame, show their faces on major news networks and decry the ending of a war, perpetuating the idea that if only the American military had stayed longer, fought harder, killed more, that the war in Afghanistan could finally be won. I'm here, of course, to tell you that it's not true. Due to the nature of the American news media and the importance of the Afghanistan war as a tool of American propaganda, see also any number of articles that claim we need to maintain perpetual war for the sake of women's rights, there's understandably a huge amount of misinformation that obfuscates the path that we've traveled up to this point. That's why in this episode, I want to try and cut through the bullshit and give you an admittedly somewhat abridged history of Afghanistan that spans about the last hundred years. That sounds like a somewhat tall order, so let's get right into it. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 117, and the season five premiere, A Brief History of Modern Afghanistan, part one. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. And with that, let's get into it. So, I said it'd be a century of history, but it turns out that we've got to go a little farther back than that. In a historical sense, the beginning of modern Afghanistan can be pinned in the 1700s, I'm not going to go quite that far back, but I do want to start in the 1800s, so not much better. Specifically, I'd like to begin with the first modern imperial incursion into Afghanistan, the first Anglo-Afghan War, of which there were three total. Now, the setup to the first one is so. Afghanistan, led by Emir Dost Muhammad Khan, is caught between two competing empires, Britain, led by the freshly crowned Queen Victoria, and Russia, led by Tsar Nicholas I. Khan made attempts to form a relationship with the British, but his attempts were rebuffed by the Governor-General of India, Lord Auckland. In response, Dost Mohammed Khan's government turned to Russia. Britain decided that even though they had refused to entertain the notions of a relationship with Afghanistan, that the Afghan government could not pursue relations with anyone else. With this, the British invaded in 1839, overthrew Khan, and replaced him with a pliant British puppet, the previous ruler, Sultan Shah Suja. He was a cruel and sadistic ruler, known for randomly mutilating people and sentencing innocents to death on a whim. The British soon learned, like the Americans would over a century later, that their puppet government could not survive without a significant occupying military force. Eventually, tribal leaders began to rise up, and in 1841, a rebellion began in the mountains, of which Afghanistan has many. As the fighting began to spread to the rest of the country, it became very clear very quickly that the British soldiers would not be able to win the war that was coming. 
the British began to organize a retreat of their forces, which consisted of an army of 4,500, along with around 12,000 accompanying civilians. Akbar Khan, an Afghan general who commanded the insurgent forces, had assured the incompetent British commander William Elphinstone that they would have safe passage out of the country. This was a lie, and over the course of their retreat, Afghan soldiers slaughtered all but a handful of people. For a long time, only a single man was thought to survive. This whole event, the 1842 Retreat of Kabul, is appropriately known as the Massacre of Elphinstone's Army. And this sets the stage for a huge reprisal by the British army almost immediately after, which ends up killing Akbar Khan and nearly destroying his army. The war, increasingly seen as pointless and wasteful in England, ended later in 1842, leading to a total British withdrawal and the return of Dost Muhammad Khan from his previous exile in India. In the 1850s, Khan would go on to reverse his anti-British policies and form an alliance with the empire in 1855, which allowed him to expand his borders without fear of reprisal. He would die in 1863 and be replaced by his son, Sher Ali Khan. Ali Khan would lead Afghanistan in 1878, when tensions between Russia and England once again flared up. The Russian Empire wanted to absorb Afghanistan into its sphere of influence, and it began this process by sending an uninvited diplomatic mission to Kabul in July 1878. Amir Khan tried and failed to prevent them from entering the country, which led to the British demanding that they receive their diplomatic mission the following month. Khan refused, saying that if such a mission was dispatched, it would be refused entry and turned back. The British sent one anyway, and when the Afghan government made good on its promise to turn it away, the British decided that they would invade. Thus starts the Second Anglo-Afghan War. The British quickly cut through the country, causing Sher Ali Khan to flee and ultimately die, being replaced by his son, Muhammad Yaqub Khan, in February 1879. That May, he signed the Treaty of Gandamark, which ceded significant territory to British colonial India in order to prevent further invasion. That September, Yaqub, who the British allowed to remain in power, was implicated in a Kabul uprising that killed a British diplomat, which in turn forced him to resign and be replaced by a cousin, Abdur Rahman Khan. This came as a perceived snub to Yaqub's brother, Ayub, who launched a rebellion to take the throne. This second phase of the Second Anglo-Afghan War ended in September 1880, when Ayub's army was crushed at the Battle of Kandahar. Victorious British put Abdur Rahman Khan back on the throne. Rahman Khan would rule for 21 years as emir, and during his reign he had approximately 100,000 people executed, earning him the nickname the Iron Emir. He died in 1901 and was replaced by his son, Habibullah Khan, who would lead Afghanistan throughout all of World War I, in which the country maintained continuous neutrality with Britain, though that's not for the central power's lack of trying. In February 1919, Habibullah was assassinated on a hunting trip under the orders of his son, Amanullah. His father had insisted that the throne go to his brother, Nashrullah, a religious man who did not wish for such responsibility. 
Knowing this, Amanullah staged a coup in his absence, seizing the throne and declaring himself emir. He would throw Nashrullah, who had freely given up the throne, as well as his supporters, in prison. Within the year, Nasrullah would be assassinated. Amanullah used his newfound grip on power to do a few things. Institute a sweeping set of modernizations and reforms that did things like create schools for girls and end mandatory dress codes for women, and instigate the, you guessed it, Third Anglo-Afghan War. See, in 1919, when the British Empire was still reeling from the losses of World War I, Amanullah saw the opportunity to regain the territory lost in the Treaty of Gandamark, as well as claim complete political independence from Britain. Though it started as a quick success for the Afghan military, it quickly soured to a stalemate that lasted until the end of 1919, when the two parties signed an armistice that affirmed Afghan political independence, but maintained the old borders. Throughout the 1920s, Amanullah's rapid reforms remained popular in cities, but generated considerable backlash in rural areas, which continued to make up the vast majority of the country. This led to a number of insurrections that the emir suppressed. In 1926, as a result of one of his many reforms, he dissolved the Emirate of Afghanistan, declared himself king, and subsequently established the Kingdom of Afghanistan. The following year, the new king traveled to Europe to meet with heads of state and fellow royalty. In his absence, the reactionary forces that had been building since the beginning of his reforms culminated in a mass uprising which began to fight across the country on its way to Kabul. The insurgents, known as the Sakoists, captured the city on January 27, 1929, leading to the resignation and flight of King Amanullah. The Sakoists, who aimed to restore the Emirate of Afghanistan, were eventually defeated later in 1929 by General Muhammad Nadir Shah, who ended the Afghan civil war by declaring himself as the new king. He stripped away Amanullah's reforms, but would only rule for a few years. In 1933, he was assassinated by an Amanullah loyalist. He was succeeded by his son and the last king of Afghanistan, Muhammad Zahir Shah. Unlike our previous leaders, Zahir Shah's reign was long and peaceful. He ruled for 39 years, guiding Afghanistan through a period of gradual modernization as well as neutrality during the Second World War and the Cold War. On January 17, 1973, while he was away in Italy seeking medical treatment, his government fell to a coup by Mohammad Dawood Khan, a former prime minister. Khan abolished the monarchy and declared a single-party republic with himself at the head. Though he promised, quote, true democracy and real reforms, nothing really changed from the last guy. In an event that would later come back to bite him, Daoud spurned one of the groups that had endorsed his rise to power, the Afghan Communist Party, PDPA, by distancing the country from the Soviet Union. This would go on to increase the pressure within the organization, and in 1978, when Daoud ordered the arrest of all communist leaders, the communists turned the tables and staged a revolt themselves. Known as the Sour Revolution, the April 27, 1978 coup instituted a very obviously pro-Soviet government and renamed the country the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. 
Eventually, led by Nur Muhammad Taraki, the new government pursued similar social reforms to the Amanullah government, as well as significant land reform to target the crushing rural poverty maintained by what were essentially feudal landlords. The existing economic power structure did not take well to being challenged, and the PDPA's social reforms fermented the same reactionary backlash that had doomed Amanullah's previous legislation. Given that the Sour Revolution was rather hastily conducted and not organized from the bottom up, it lacked a rural base of support. This key factor, combined with the sudden and sweeping institution of land reform, meant that crop outputs fell drastically. There had been no real preparation for its institution, so nobody was ready, or often able, to suddenly produce along these new guidelines. The resulting shortages and hunger problems increased discontent within the PDPA's government. Soon, across the country, there were pockets of unrest and insurrection. Taraki's government was able to fight them back to a point. The strength of the insurgency was growing, and if it continued, the communist government would be doomed. It was during this period when the Afghan government, on seven separate instances, requested the presence of Soviet soldiers. All of these requests were denied, with the USSR instead choosing to simply send supplies. Eventually, a schism between Taraki and his second-in-command, Hafizullah Amin, resulted in Amin's botched assassination. Amin, who managed to escape the trap set for him with only an injury, ordered the Afghan army into Kabul, after which Taraki resigned, and shortly after was smothered to death with a pillow. Amin then ruled over Afghanistan with an iron fist, ordering thousands of executions over the span of only three months. It was this brutality that made the Soviet Union change its tune about sending soldiers. The violence was so flagrant and intense that they suspected Amin of being a CIA agent, though there's no evidence to support that. The opening overture of the Soviet-Afghan war was known as Storm 333, a successful raid on Tajbeg Palace that killed Hafizullah Amin. The Soviets installed Babrak Karmel, who pursued reform and reconciliation policies, including freeing those imprisoned by the previous regimes, but due to the method he came about power, he immediately had a legitimacy problem with the Afghan people. To make matters worse, as soon as the Soviets arrived with troops, a new group quickly took shape. They were called the Mujahideen, and many of their members would go on to form the Taliban. One of the premier organizers and funders of the Mujahideen was a rich man with significant ties to construction firms in Saudi Arabia, Osama bin Laden. But hold on a sec, because here I need to jump around a little bit. In March 1979, Jimmy Carter authorized the CIA to begin Operation Cyclone, a program of significant military aid to the Mujahideen. It would grow to become the most expensive operation in the agency's history. By 1987, its cost had risen to $630 million per year. America's aim was to, as Carter's national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski would put it, increase the probability that the Soviets would commit ground troops. They wanted to create a Soviet Vietnam, a war that would drag on for years and slowly bleed them dry. In this, they undoubtedly succeeded, as the Soviet-Afghan war would continue for 10 years. 
This was all justified on the international scene by the imperialist Carter Doctrine, which stated that any Soviet activity in the Persian Gulf would be seen as a direct threat to the United States, and that the United States reserved the right to respond with military force. Like the price tag, the scope of Operation Cyclone was gargantuan. Not only did it involve the shipment of massive amounts of weapons, including Stinger missiles that would later be used against American aircraft, but the CIA also provided special-made textbooks that would indoctrinate the children of Afghanistan into the ways of violent anti-Soviet jihad. These same books, with titles like The Alphabet for Jihad Literacy, were still being used when America invaded two decades later. Outside the provisions of weapons and material, Operation Cyclone also oversaw the massive expansion of opium production in Afghanistan. The Mujahideen needed a steady source of income, and so the CIA facilitated its production of opium poppies, used to produce heroin and other opioids, which the agency then trafficked through Pakistan and back onto the streets of North America. In the 1970s, Afghan fields produced only about 100 tons of opium per year. In 1989, at the end of Operation Cyclone, that number had increased to 2,000 tons per year, which at the time accounted for 75% of the global opium trade. The operation was a success. The Soviets had gotten their Vietnam, the Mujahideen were victorious, and coincidentally, rates of heroin addiction in the United States had doubled. The Soviets announced their withdrawal in 1987 and completely pulled out of Afghanistan by 1989, though they continued to provide financial support to the Afghan government until their own collapse in 1991. It's often thought that the war in Afghanistan exacerbated structural issues within the USSR and hastened its demise. Yet the end of the Soviet-Afghan war did not bring peace. A wide array of internal Mujahideen factions, further radicalized and supplied by the United States, began to vie for power in a brutal civil war that culminated in the formation of a government by a new group called the Taliban, a fanatical religious group that consisted of many former members and leaders of the Mujahideen. They took power in 1996 and instituted a government defined by religious fundamentalism, Women could no longer go outside without a very specific reason, nor were they allowed to speak to men who were not in their family. Disobeying the Taliban became punishable by swift execution, and it was through this system of strict and immediate punishment that the Taliban cemented their authority among civilians and kept their territory quiet as they pursued control over the final pieces of the country. In a bid for international recognition, in 2000, the Taliban forbade the production of opium, and by the following year, the size of the crop had gone from 4,600 tons per year to 185. As you may be able to guess, their bid did not succeed. On September 11, 2001, of course, Longtime American ally and anti-Soviet freedom fighter Osama bin Laden orchestrated a series of attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and one unknown target. The Americans instantly jumped to war. In fact, plans had been made for the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq before 9-11 even happened. Dick Cheney famously had a map made up that divided Iraq's oil reserves up between his petroleum company buddies. That is to say that... 
America very clearly had other motives for invading. This is supported by the fact that on October 14, 2001, the Taliban offered to turn Osama over to the American government in exchange for an end to the bombings. The Bush administration, specifically Donald Rumsfeld, refused. America wanted war. Now that, uh, I think, is a pretty good natural break. There is really a tremendous amount of information to cover from here on out. So much so that I don't think I'd really be able to do it justice if I did it all in one episode. Besides, I don't know if I have it in me to write a script that long. You may have noticed that this is indeed a part one. Part two, which will come out in two weeks, is going to cover the history of Afghanistan in the 21st century. If that sounds like something that you're interested in, then subscribe to the show and, I don't know, maybe put something on your calendar. Thanks for listening this week. I'm really excited about the things that Season 5 has in store, and I hope you are too. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe, share it with a friend, and tune in in two weeks for a brief history of modern Afghanistan, Part 2. Thanks again. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.